0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today we are going to be hearing from legendary live sound mixer Buford Jones. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to check out any of our other content that's not featured, head over to nam.org/library
2: okay welcome back everyone to the music history project podcast we are super excited about today's episode which is the full interview that we conducted outside of nashville tennessee in 2019 with legendary sound mixer buford jones uh, among the amazing things this guy has done during his career is a uh, live sound for oh a couple of people you may have heard of pink floyd david bowie Prince, Eric Clapton, ZZ Top, Linda Rodstein. Oh, okay. there's like 30 of those top-name folks. Oh, George Harrison, forgot about that guy. And then uh because he was so associated with these bands and really in some respects as we're going to learn today became sort of a member of the band is as, as far as projecting and figuring out how he could do his job to achieved the sound that they were looking for he also helped with some legendary albums that those artists and others have done over the years as well so an amazing combination of talents we're going to hear from him and his amazing career Um, and there's just so much to learn that I'm super psyched that we get to do this uh, podcast for you guys today
0: Yeah, this is a very exciting one for sure. Uh, One of my favorite interviews, I think, because of just the stories that he goes into and the host of acts that he's worked with. It's just insane. And this is our, I think it's our third episode of the podcast that we are recording from our own homes because we are still on stay-at-home orders. Um, interesting, uh, definitely different, but it's been going well the past couple weeks and I hope this episode is just as good as the last two.
1: And so to, uh, begin our podcast, we're going to listen to a little bit of his, um, origin story, maybe would be the right word. (laughs) Uh, and just, you know, hearing about growing up and how he kind of, uh, stumbled into the electronics and suddenly, uh, started touring with bands. Uh, It's a fantastic story, and if all of us could have this much luck on our second day of a job, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Uh, But here we go. Uh, This is the beginning of Buford Jones.
2: So one of the things I was kind of hoping to chat with you about is your passion for music and and sound and sort of how that developed. Did you have a lot of music in your home when you were growing up?
3: Sure did. I, I grew up in a musical family. My My grandmother, I never really got to meet her, but I understand that she was a very, very good piano player. And so my dad had the piano that she had as we were growing up in uh, Port Arthur, Texas. And um, so, yeah, I, I was around. In fact, we had two pianos, one in the house and one in my dad's shop. And then guitars galore because he not only played guitar and piano, but he repaired all stringed instruments. And I would witness this from childhood. He worked at a refinery there uh, as a a supervisor for one of the main sections, but it was his hobby to work on musical instruments. And then when he retired, then he went full into uh, repair. He made two guitars for me. Uh, He made uh, three pedal steels that I remember during school, and that's, that's quite a complicated task for somebody that's not a factory or a business, but you sit down and, I mean, he'd do everything from the rods, threading the rods, he had metal lathes, and, uh, you know, he'd he'd make everything. He'd wind his own pickups. I'd watch him do that sometime by hand, and he had a a motor, low RPM motor. And uh, it's fascinating to watch him do that stuff. I wished I would have watched him a lot more. I think as all of us... uh, grow up and we look back at our childhood and says what we could have learned so much more from our parents if we had just simply paid a little bit more attention. But to me, I grew up with it. This was like, yeah, big deal. So it was about 14 that I started playing guitar. And um, and then he later made me one at 16. But at 14 I started picking around the guitar and he had a firm way that he expected me to learn because he was a Chet Atkins. Uh, fan and Merle Travis and so he had me using my fingers and uh, that was that was very beneficial and I at that time I thought why are you making me play this way but now I'm so glad that I learned that way and then from that I went into college and uh, took a course in classical guitar so uh, it was a breeze for me where a lot of the students had never even done that before because they're just learning to play the guitar. So, uh, therefore, it came real easy to me, and uh, it was a very fascinating way of playing. I believe, if you if you train as beginning to play the guitar, if you train in classical guitar, you can play any style if you want to. It's not. It's going to show you to read music. It's going to show you to appreciate the instrument, to hold the instrument properly. And then uh, all the exercises and learning to play, so I'm really glad I did it. It didn't make me a great guitar player, <laughs> but I'm saying that I, I, I played because of a passion. I just enjoy it. As uh, in college, high school and college, it was just every chance I'd get, I'd play. And so, yes, that was, that was the background that got me started. Uh, I had several friends who I knew were musicians and uh, they were really talented musicians, and they uh, just were somewhat of a struggle in life and I, I I don't know if I made the decision then that it's just not what I want to choose for an occupation because I'm not that good at it and I'm watching them so I says, well you know I just happened to have a degree in electronics in, in college and uh, I used that to fix stereos when I got out of school this is leading up to I got in the sound business So, I took the course in electronics, and I was was very pleased with that, I did well at it, and uh, whenever I left college and started working and repairing stereos, and I was enjoying that, working full days and repairing a piece of gear, which I still do to this day. Hmm. So, something in here breaks, I'll go in and throw it on the bench, tear it apart, and maybe 70% of getting it working again. (laughs) I can't get it all working. Things have changed a lot, but... Uh, no, I, I, I'm really fascinated with that challenge to, to take something that's broken and fix it. So it's not on electronics. I'm that way in my whole house. I, I do everything here. Uh, so I fix it when it's broken. So that was another uh, good attribute to have to get into this business. And whenever I uh, had uh, was working the stereo place, I had a friend come up to me and tell me that uh, in fact, he was Rusty Bruchet, who you've done an article on, uh, his cousin, I think it's a cousin. And anyway, uh, he had come up to me, and of course I didn't know Rusty and Shoko at that point. But we had met somewhere, this, this cousin of his, and, and he told me, he says, you need to go down to this business talk to these guys. And I said, really? And I said, I had no idea what they were. I had no idea what sound reinforcement meant. Uh, My dad had put some speakers in our church, but I had really never got involved with sound systems and uh, zero Uh, No mixing anybody in a club or anything of the sort so I I went in and uh, After he had convinced me that you need to go down and talk to these people well It's it was Shoko and Russie Boucher Jack Maxson and Jack Calmes. I Knew nothing of Shoko Uh, not a clue. I didn't know what they did Uh, when I walked in I saw some big black speaker boxes over there, and I said, wow, those look cool. I wonder what my guitar <laughs> would sound like through them. So I, um, anyway, I went in the office. Jack Calmes, Jack Maxson, and Rusty Bruchet all interviewed me. And uh, of course, they wanted to know right off the bat Did I have a degree?" And I said, yes, I did, in electronics. And they said, that's good. And then they wanted to know uh, if I played an instrument or had any music background. I said, yes, I did. I play instrument, study guitar. And they said, that's great. And I told them I had a studio, and they said, that's great. You're fitting right in so far. And then they asked me if I was single. And I thought, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, ended up that they hired me, and two years later I found out what that (laughs) If I was single meant, I think it's pretty much meant this, uh, we're gonna be sending you on the road with the big suitcase and a box of Tide and you're not coming home. And uh, which was definitely the case for me the first year. I took the job, I was making more money than uh, than I was preparing stereos and I was totally happy doing that. Mm. So uh, here it is, I'm, uh, I said, okay, and agreed to it. And they said, well, come in tomorrow and we'll sort your day. So I went on back to the stereo place and turned in my resignation, and the next morning I was at Shoko, and I was re- I was soldering uh, 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 connectors onto 27-pair building cables, what we call the snake cables, the audio lines, and I'm uh, soldering these cables, and I figure this is my gig, this is what I'm doing, because it's similar to what I w- was doing, bench work, bench electrician work. And I'm doing this about half the day and uh, roughly, I think right after lunch, uh, Jack Maxson came in to me. This is my first day at Shoko. He come in to me at around one o'clock and said, go home, pack your bags, come back down, and you're going to be on tour with Three Dog Night. And I said, Three Dog Night? They play music, don't they? They're a pretty big band. Yeah, yeah, just go pack your bags. So I went home, packed my bags, come back down, loaded up the truck, drive to Atlanta, Atlanta Fulton Stadium. <coughs> and the next day we did Three Dog Night uh, there in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And that was Three Dog Night's heyday. So that was a big gig. And I think we'd used both of Shoko's sound systems. When I walked in the door, they had just finished the second one. So which I think they went on to build 12 or something like that. I'm really not sure of the number after I left there. and. Um, So here, yeah, my first day, uh, second day, I find myself on the road with Three Dog Nine. That's very rare. That doesn't happen the most. And it's no credit to me. It's just being at the right place at the right time. And uh, I was amazed. I look back many times and say that that was the start of my career. And many, and most, you know, have experience in uh, mixing sound in clubs and theaters and churches, houses of worship, and uh, I had zero. And so here but... I found it so interesting that once I set up the sound system, and Shoko had made things at that time that was pretty much fail-proof. I mean, as far as not only durability, but I mean, as hooking it up, uh, you'd, you'd really have to go <laughs> to a lot of trouble to hook it up wrong by the configuration of the connectors used and this and that. <clears throat> so, I found it, to me, because I had the electronic background, that, yeah, this is, this is, I can get into this, and then playing guitar, and music, and then once I saw the show, I said, wow, this is, a, this is just an amazing thrill. So, um, they're all quickly adapted. At that time period, 3-Dog uh, only toured on the weekends, uh, which is typical of country music touring, but that wasn't the case in rock touring. Mm. But I think they were doing well enough to where they, I suppose, they just took that option. They'd only work on the weekends. So suddenly, here I'm out with Three Dog Night, but on uh, Sunday night, they go home. Monday, well, we get a call or go do the Guess Who, pick up the Guess Who. You're doing a show with the Guess Who, or it's a beautiful day. Uh, the Kinks, um, many other groups uh, during that time period, Wishbone Ash, uh, that we would, that's what would fill in the week and then join back with Three Dog Night on the weekend. <laughs> and uh, did that for a solid year. So. That was my start, and I say, you know, there's a certain amount of advantages to being able to uh, kind of pick up from that level, but then at the same time, maybe there's a lot that I should have learned or, or could have learned that uh, would have made all the process somewhat different, but I'm not sure as to how, because, no, I was just exposed to it, as I said, not being redundant, but it just all made sense to me, and it's just something that... Yeah, I can get into this. So I was assistant to Jack Maxson, who was mixing the show, and I, I just, I'd never heard a sound like that. I'd never heard anything of that power, that uh, uh, quality, and, and the fact that what what Jack Maxson did with Three Dog Night was so impressive to me. It burned an image in me that lasted forever. And I think that's what I've always strived to get in my sound, uh, final sound, was the similarities and the techniques that. Jack Maxson used on Three Dog Night. Mm. I was so impressed. Floyd Sneed, the drummer, and the way Jack could make his drum sound was just beautiful. Uh, Powerful, but not overwhelming. I think we hear that too much in modern-day rock, where the kick drum is the loudest thing that you can hear outside in the parking lot. Two blocks away from the venue, you can still hear the kick drum. But no, Jack had a, a very full and round mix. And I've always tried to achieve that. So it was uh, there. I was on my way, and and uh, it, it kind of kept snowballing. And and I was out for that solid year. I think pretty much. I might have come home for <clears throat> a few weeks here and there, but most of that year, that was 1971. I'm sorry, I don't remember the month. Ronald uh, will call it off the time, but it was it was pretty much a solid year. Uh, with three dogs. Hmm. And then uh, many other groups stem thereafter.
2: I'm sort of curious, um, you've been uh, able to see this amazing evolution in technology change. What was it like from that first show as far as like fr- front of the house and how it was all set up? Was it even front of the house back then?
3: <coughs> oh yeah. Well. <laughs> Sometimes the promoters, they would want uh, to sell every seat in the house. So the typical thing that we see now in modern touring is, of course, the front of the house and all the lighting equipment sit right in the middle of the room. I think in the early 70s, a lot of promoters didn't want to see that because they're giving up prime ticket sales. And, uh, you know, so they would put it in different spots and exits or... Somewhere where you're really not even hearing the sound, that'd be fine with them. But uh, no, after a while, I, I, I didn't follow that rule anymore, even though it was pushed pretty hard on these smaller gigs, and, uh, because I wanted to hear both sides of the sound system. I wanted to know that all the sound system was only once. I think it only took one time at a concert that I remember. I don't remember who was playing at the night, but uh, it might have been the kinks. But at that point, I was sitting the promoter made me go to one side real heavily. And I'm sitting way over there on the left, say, for instance, and then somebody from the audience in the middle of the show comes up to tell me that, hey, buddy, your PA's not on over there on the other side. And me sitting off to the left, I couldn't hear it. So or I didn't notice it as quickly as I should. Okay. So uh, from that point forward, I said, I'm sitting in the middle regardless. And then, I, I, you know, that's way I could hear both sides of the PA. But I've always been a stereo fan. And I think I was probably among the first at Shoko to actually start mixing in stereo, which is very controversial during that time period.
2: Yeah, tell me about that. I do remember reading about that.
3: Yeah. Well, everybody, you know, in most cases we, we see the mono, well, everybody hears the same thing. Well, then why do we even have stereo? That's like saying, well, you buy a stereo for your living room if you don't sit dead center, on the couch, then it's useless. No, it's not. It's, it's, you know, we've come up on the technology changes so much in the uh, live sound world and a horizontal dispersion of the PA. So sitting off axis, off to the edge, you will still hear both sides. I think there's a bit of psychology that plays in this as well. Uh, for instance, if you're sitting on the left side, we visually see that we are closer to a guitar player uh, the imaging that we see, you expect that. Uh, let me put it this way, another way. If you were to go up to the balcony and sit at the top seat of the balcony, you'd expect to hear it in mono because it's already summed at that point anyway. But that's what your brain says. If I was to hear separation all the way back in the room, it would be unnatural. I wouldn't pick that up. So, Sitting off to the one side, and I think stereo imaging and what we sort of get it mixed up with, and of course I eventually went into surround mixing, so there you go. That didn't even complicate the situation more. We can talk about that in a little bit about Pink Floyd and the way the sound setup was there, which was the second tour I did in surround. The first one was David Bowie. But, uh, no, it's, it's an experience, and immersive audio in, uh, in live sound is something that needs to be done dynamically. Now, stereo mixing, back to stereo mixing, no, I think the excitement that it adds to the mix, uh, especially to what I call prime real estate, the people that sit, paid the most money for their tickets, they're in the front. I I see no reason for these people to get nothing but the best. Now we want the best for the entire room, but we haven't conquered physics, and we're not going to conquer physics, and that's not going to happen unless everybody wears headphones. So it's just not going to happen. Now now we've we've come really close to doing this, but uh, it's just not going to fully happen. So I think that prime real estate. If they can get a real exciting. Uh, performance and, and and I pan things in the mix to where I see them, not necessarily necessarily the way they're pan on the record. So the guitar player is standing on the left. I've got him panned slightly to the left. I've got and uh, keyboards on the right. I've got them slightly panned to the right. The drums slightly spread. A very, it's it's very it's not it's not discrete stereo. Is what I call it. it and so what that does in the imaging. It adds more to, again, the visual visualization that i'm 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 hearing it as I'm seeing it. Uh, so it makes it a much more natural environment. If you're off to the left a little bit, the guitar player is panned to the left a little bit. Fine. My brain says he should be a little louder because he's closer to me, and I see him. I have checked this many, many different ways and uh, and, and listened to it, and I found it uh, definitely more beneficial. So stereo has become the normal, but in the 70s it wasn't. And many people would argue that fact, that you just couldn't do it. Well, I was going to do it. And, and, and I, I might have been, I mean, there might have been several other guys doing it at the same time I was doing it. I don't know. I just sort of... Uh, found a direction and I was just looking for the best sound I could achieve and I uh, would do that.
2: So what did Jack and Rusty and those guys think of what you were doing?
3: <laughs> well whenever I chuckled, cause I'll tell you what, they were very lenient on me. <laughs> um, it seemed like coming in at that time point and being young and you know uh, I, I made mistakes like we all make mistakes and um, they were very lenient when I look back i I really i wonder why uh, I should have well been kicked out for a few things that I did, but I think there must have been something else in there that they were seeing that I was doing right so um, I appreciate that. I learned uh, so much from Jack on being on the road with him rusty i i had uh, on Led zeppelin was I would take out some additional p a when they would do their larger shows, but I had nothing to do really with the uh, engineering part of that. Um, but I would watch Rusty work and, and listen to his work and just mesmerized. I mean, again, once again, what he did with Led Zeppelin, uh, you asked me earlier the changes in, in the early part in the 70s against what we have now. We made tremendous uh, achievements and advantages and, uh, uh, in, in, in technology today. But I'll tell you what, I still, I mean, just maybe I was young, maybe I. I look back at those shows of Three Dog Night and Led Zeppelin, and they still were so powerful Uh, that experience and that performance, what both those guys did with those groups. Mm -hmm. And do I I go to a show now, am I more satisfied than I was then in 1970? Say, with all the equipment, all the new things? No, I'm not. It's like. I understand that we have better better coverage and flexibility, but still, and there was a lot of things to be learned, but I think Shoko had uh, between them uh, just the right concept in putting the sound system together to enhance uh live concerts. So I, I accepted that uh, in a way that it was uh it was exciting. I couldn't wait to get these speakers up. You know, I often joke that uh it's not a joke really, but I often say that you know the 2 hours of show time of a given day out on the road I'm fine. It's the other 22 hours <laughs> Of getting to A to B to C to D and uh, and this and that, that's uh, quite taxing. And uh, but that showtime is priceless, you know. As we see commercials about well, this and this and this, is priceless. And well, it's that way. And I think that's what would drive all of us as young people working in the live sound industry to um, to do just that to, to to have this exciting experience, and it lasts. Now there's nights that it's not so exciting. That's the thing about live audio. And I think against uh, studio recording and studio mixing, you know, in studio we have a rewind button, we have a stop button. And in live sound, you got one shot. There is no stopping, there is no rewinding. I think there's been several <laughs> concerts that after it began, I wanted to tell, uh, you know, get on the talk back to the band while they're playing and say, hey, hey could y'all just stop and start it over again? I'll nail it from the downbeat this time. <laughs> no, it's not going to work that way. You got you got one shot to get it right. So that that really strengthens that challenge to get this done right. And you um, you 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 got this approach that you know the 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 sound console to me is a musical instrument and it was in that time period when i started i realized it right away that hey now i'm playing music but i'm not i don't have a typical guitar or keyboard to play it on but the sound console is an instrument and it should be played musically that's where i think music background is such a benefit to the engineer when i approach that i'm detached from the band that's on the stage But I'm still playing an instrument with them. I'm still playing music with them.
0: So once again, we are listening to the 2019 interview with Buford Jones on the Music History Project. And it's just very cool to be hearing from people representing the pro audio and live sound of the industry. Um, Because here at NAMM, we're very into Pro Audio, Live Sound, along with manufacturers and retailers and all aspects of the music industry. And I wanted to give a quick plug that if you're interested in finding out more about the Live Sound community, you can head over to slash nam, library and check out the tags that we have um, in our advanced search feature for the oral history interviews. And you can search through all of the different subcategories of uh, uh, Pro Audio or live sound, or mixing, all that kind of stuff. It's a very cool feature, um, and it goes very in-depth into our collection. So let's jump back into this interview with Buford. He is going to be talking more about the different artists that he's worked with, some of the tours that he started going on, um, and just the amazing career that he had in the live sound industry.
3: And what really escalated my career in a monumental way is after 10 years at Shelco, I decided to go independent. And I, I worked for the artist directly. And that way I also contracted to travel with the artist. And that way I could speak with them, the musicians, about the music anytime. And that way on the, uh, on the bus, airplane, whatever it was, private plane, this and that, whenever we would uh, leave the gig, it's, it's, it's still fresh on your mind, the show. And I think that's it's time to say, you know, how'd you feel about it? Did you enjoy this? Whatever. And I started making recordings in the early days, which is very rare. And there was a huge debate in the 70s. Well, you can't record the show. and We only had a cassette medium to do it. Uh, you can't. That's nothing. That's, you can't record and listen to the show and have any sort of material to evaluate. Well, I said, well, I'm going to argue that point because I think that you do. And it depends on several elements that you've got to do to make all that work. It's the tuning of the sound system for one. Secondly, is working very closely with the artist and controlling the sound on the stage. And you get that in order and most are willing to work with you on that. And then once you've done this and and, uh, again the tuning of the sound system, uh, you can make recordings that are very useful to hear. And uh, so it's like I would do that, and I'd, I'd love the opportunity to um, be able to hear what the members of the band have to say about the mix. Now it was nail-chewing. The first night, I remember, it was roughly, uh, roughly around 75, maybe 76, I don't know, 77, somewhere in that time period, was with Linda Ronstein, who I have so, so much admiration for. Her. and. And I remember the first night I told them I wanted to do this, listen to the show tape, which could send a lot of engineers home. Um, And and so they, they agreed, yeah, let's go listen to it. And so we sat in the back of the bus, we had a tour bus at that point. I'll never forget this scenario where Linda Ronstadt was sitting next here to me, Peter Asher, her manager and producer, was sitting here, and the rest of the band was sitting here. I very nervously put in that cassette and push play and it plays for a little bit and I go, well, Buford, uh, where's the guitar? Well, it'll be there tomorrow (laughs) night. (laughs) <laughs> now, I might have very well had a stack of Marshalls pointed at me, you know, that I'm hearing the direct sound off of them and didn't have them in the mix enough. But I'll tell you what, that guitar was in the mix the next night. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and then, and then the great points was to say like, okay, well, this guitar part and this, this keyboard part need to blend together because that forms the hook or that is a signature of that song the way it was written. Okay, I didn't know that. A front of house mixer won't know these things if he doesn't have the opportunity to sit with the artist and really fine toothy things out. What that does is give me a lot more confidence in my mix when I work. I don't want it the Buford way. I, I want it the way that they have created this song and put it together. They have spent months, sometimes years, in preparing an album. I find it very strange that when an album is released, and it's promoted on the radio, and we hit the road, it's almost a stop of the recording staff, meaning engineers, producers, and what, and now new engineers and producers pick that up, or engineers, hardly a producer involved. Some go on the road, some don't, but, and there you go, and I go like, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture, you know, you've you've labored, a long time to make this record and to make it work a certain way. Now, in live, we can add a lot of spontaneity to it, a lot of excitement. We can put some icing on the cake, but the, it has to be there in the first place. When I say that word, you know, I, I sum it up when I look at sound reinforcement, live sound reinforcement. I was picked up about the same period of time in New York City by a cab driver. He's taking me to the hotel and as they interrogate you as they do where you're from and how many family and how's the flight, where you're from, what do you do, this and that. So anyway, he wanted to know what I was doing in New York City. And I says, well, I'm here, I mix concerts. And he said, who do you mix? I said, Linda Ronstadt. He goes, oh, mama bakes the cake and you serve it. And I just went, wow, wow. Uh, if I ever write my book. That'll be the name of the book, They Bake the Cake and I Serve It. I thought that was incredible. I've always used that. And that's exactly what it is. It's being created on the stage. It's our job to deliver it, not to alter it, not to destroy it. If we can enhance it, that's great. But there's a point where you can go over enhancement. And we're changing the original concept. When I was introduced a couple of times to punk rock, say for instance, and I had, I had worked many years throughout the um, uh, California sound, and then I'd be Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Don Henley, and then, uh, then suddenly I'm, I'm hit with some uh, another genre of music, and I, I go like, ah. And I, I would sit and try to polish it. And it was David Bowie of all people that sat me down. There. In fact, you know, he come out and chatted with me on the Iggy Pop tour, and I love Iggy. He's a great guy. Jimmy Osterberg, he, he's just he's just wonderful. And he was out promoting his new record, and David was helping him. And David wanted his crew, which I was on, uh, to be on the Iggy Pop tour. Well, it was Ten Machine, and, and it was just different for me. That's all. It's just different. I, I highly respected this and and uh, what this tour was. And, uh, but it was, the music was such a different ball game. And here I was trying to polish it and, and, and I just wasn't successful in doing it. It was very hard for me to get, uh, you know, the drum sound that I typically wanted and, 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 and all this together. And David came out to console a couple of days later and he'd sit down with me and he was just, as he did with everyone, David was that kind of a person in the early seventies and just, just liked to go out and talk to people that, that was working for him. So anyway, he's come out sat down with me and asked me what I thought about the band. And I, Well, I, I like them, they're all great guys, but I'm having a hard time finding, you know, the foundation here and getting it in the pocket. I don't remember word for word, I tried to for years because it made a very strong impact on me, and he, but what he said, summed up, was that You've heard there's many genres of music that many of us like, many of us dislike. But at the same time, there's a group of people that will uh, be attracted to these certain genres. And uh, he's one of them. David fits in, uh, all artists are, okay, and fits in a genre that's different from most, but yet he has an enormous following that, that enjoy that. That's what they want to hear. And he was saying, if you try to change that, then you're taken away from the originality. And that made total sense to me. I said, stop trying to make this perfect or trying to make this polished, so to speak, I don't know really the quite or the right word to use. Then I started, that made an impact on me. And I went up on the stage and started listening more to the sound that was on the stage. I said, okay, this is what it sounds like up here. This is what I reproduce. And from that day forward, of uh, the couple of months we were on tour, everything was fine. I just leveled right out from that conversation with David. And, uh, and, and it was it. That, that I understood it. And I followed it. And I saw the reaction of the crowd that came to see him, which is very, very satisfying. So with every genre of music, I don't think that you can take as you meet artists throughout when you're touring. Uh, use the same approach, you know. You need to have that communication with the artist. I can't stress that enough. I'll be talking about it. I was so fortunate to be able to do that where most engineers aren't. They have to set that sound system up, uh, they, they get out of their bunk in the morning and at 6.30, 7 o'clock, they're out there unloading trucks, they bring the sound system in, they got to put it all together, hang it, uh, take it up into the ceiling and uh, do what they do, now tune it, uh, and that's among everybody else doing their jobs, which, which can be quite interfering get the sound system set up and done. Okay, might have enough time hopefully to get a sound check in, you get a sound check in, then here come eight o'clock and you're gonna mix a show after you've already been working 12 difficult hours. I don't think that's right. I do not think that's right and I'll never agree with it. Um, The band, they come in at five or six o'clock, do a sound check and they play. So does the artist. Are they some sort of holier than thou or are they some sort of privileged people or are they some sort of well-educated or educated more than me or any other engineer? No't think so. We're all in the same we're all in the same bracket. Uh, it, it's like but we have time periods that the expectation of our work is judged. okay So that means that that sound engineer that worked all day long in the heat, uh miserable conditions in many situations, sits down and mixes that show at 8 o'clock at night. Now, if it doesn't sound good, the manager, or no one else, is going to take into consideration. consider, oh, you were out there since early this morning? Oh, I'm sorry, that's why the show sounded bad. Well, we'll just forget that one last night and we'll move on. No. His expectation and his performance time period is showtime. So I, I made up my mind if I'm going to do this after ten years of being in the business, that was 1970 through 1980, and uh, Jackson Brown had contacted me, and I had said to their management that I I want to travel with the band, I want to discuss music with the band, uh, I want to be paid like the band, but <laughs> but that didn't happen. But, <laughs> no, I, maybe, no, Jackson paid me well. I, I, uh, but but. I I want that communication. They well understood it. There was no argument. Of course, of course we want you doing that. And as I said from that day forward, every group that I worked with from that point forward, but that was the case. Mm. I worked with the artist. There's only a few cases where maybe the band bus was full uh, or or their private planes were full or whatever. And then I would travel with the crew, which I would typically do a lot of times when a tour would start, I would travel with the crew for the first week and make sure that we all have a good understanding between us, what my expectations are and what I want the system to be tuned to and working to when I get there. And so, when I come in, I come in with a fresh attitude. I don't come in with uh you know uh, being uh, exhausted and what have you, and uh frustrated or stressed out because of uh, this and that so that's why the that's why the artists enjoy that. They shouldn't be out there working either. Uh, again, I always felt loading and unloading these trucks, but everybody experiences the same thing that does it I've seen. Guys get their hands smashed between a trunk or smashed between two boxes in the truck. How can I mix a show if I have smashed my hands? And I think that's why band members get that treatment. Um, Let them do what they do within reason during the day. And then they're not in harm's way. Don't want anybody to be in harm's way. But the person who's going to mix the sound and deliver your show to the people at that concert that night, who have paid quite a bit of money to see that, need to be refreshed. And I think the lighting director is the same thing. And, and I've seen that happen in many cases. And, and I think it, it makes a noticeable difference in the outcome of the show. And uh, very important.
2: That's incredible. Good stuff. We didn't talk about uh, Pink Floyd yet.
3: Okay. The uh, first 10 years, uh, like I said, were a a lot of groups that that come in handy. I I mentioned to you that... Three Dog Night and Led Zeppelin, and then all the little fillers in between, and those weren't little fillers. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful day, it was quite an experience. I I had uh, met ZZ Top uh, just as Trey Zombies was released, and uh, they were an opening act to Uriah Heep, is when I met them. And I've never seen anything like that. I mean, the energy coming out of three guys on stage, I'd heard of ZZ Top, and I kind of Uh, You know, listen, their albums were blown away with it, but wow. So we just hit it with all Texans. So that was a requirement for ZZ topping in in the 70s. You had to be a Texan to be involved. (laughs) So I fit that bill, and that was my first band to mix, okay? So that was, I think, on my ID cards, uh, I think it was 73, 74, 73, 74. And um, then it just started rolling from that. Linda Ronstadt fell uh, there quickly, and I started mixing. I'd say she fell in in, in my line of uh, artists very quickly. And I went out with her and had a wonderful time. And Eric Barrett was her tour manager, who uh, tour managed uh, Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie, and, and also James Taylor. So there at that time. And so there, just meeting Eric and, and, and now working with Linda, uh, then James Taylor come right in hand, and so did uh, uh, the others. And, and it just started snowballing in a way that, you know, I felt that, well, I went independent here, so i had have a little bit more time at home. I was, uh, I was standing on the road pretty much nine to ten months out of the year, those first ten years. Mm. And I said, I don't think I could handle this frequency. I, it wasn't even reasonable to look for an apartment because I wouldn't be there. I'm paying for something, I wouldn't be there. I actually lived in the back of a Mexican food restaurant that a friend of mine owned the property and it had a little room in the back. He said, yeah, put your stuff in there. I had a 12 by 12 room that I had all my studio equipment. What I had then, I had in a bed right in the middle and that that, Just equipment all the way around it and that's, that's where I lived. So traveling so much I said I wanted to reduce this. Well, I had said to Peter Asher, who I had already worked with Lyndon James through Shoko, and I'd asked him, I said, look, uh, you know, if I quit Shoko, would you hire me directly? And this gets back to what I've already talked about, my independent side of the career. And that's what he did. He hired me and that started it, okay. Mm-hmm. So as I mixed those groups uh, through the 80s, and uh, and uh, David Bowie, uh, all his tours during that time period in the 70s and the 80s, uh, I missed Sirius Moonlight and, and uh, Glass Spiders because I was out on other obligations. But then uh, the phone would just ring, and and I had no resume. Uh, and and I, I just I really I just wanted a little bit of time at home. When I come in off a tour, I'd be I head right to the music store because the bank account had got a little bit higher because I'm not home to spend it, and I've used my per diem. So when I get home, I go to the music store, buy new gear, come home and start playing and having a great time. And the phone will ring.
0: So I think the one thing that I'm really taking away from this interview is just kind of the what he does for his job and what everyone does when it comes to touring and live music and that quote that he said earlier mama makes the cake and you serve it it just kind of it it makes sense it 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 really just kind of i don't know it's very simple but like you think of all the stuff these guys do and there's so many people organizing a tour and putting it on and putting on the concerts and just that really is like oh yeah now i know what he does
2: (laughs) Very well said, I I totally agree with you. And I think that there is a reminder that Ashley was uh, talking about um, before we got back to this segment, which was the guy didn't stop for 10 full years. And really what that looks like is not just a resume of amazing artists that he worked with, but he has 10 full passports, you guys, 10. (laughs) I mean, that's what? I don't get that. I think I'm still working on my first one. I've been with Nam 20 years. I mean, it's absolutely crazy to think how much this guy actually did travel. And in order to do this, you've got to figure there's a lot of sacrifices. And he kept perfecting his art, and that's the thing we celebrate. But I also think it's much more than that that we should be celebrating. It's a dedication. And to me, I really love that quote. Um, about the cake. But, you know, to me, the second takeaway is probably equally important. And that is to him, he felt part of the band. He felt like if it really worked on all cylinders for him, he was acting as if he was a member of the band. And what that entails is him bringing his background, his influences, and his craft and his skills to produce the sound that the band wants, just as much as that guy making the D chord. And I love that about that interpretation of his job, because it's clear he was very dedicated to it and perfected that. And what I also appreciate is that we're going to hear, particularly in the second part of this interview, is... His payback, you know, paying it forward, telling the younger people today of some of the things to look out for and some of the things that they can do to add their own personal stamp to this job. I really, really greatly appreciated that. The other thing I wanted to say is, as you can probably tell in his voice, what a nice guy. I mean, I just really enjoyed being with him. Um, I felt so welcomed out to his home You know, got to pet his dog and hang out for a little bit, uh, drool all over the amazing equipment and accolades everywhere, and just realizing, you know, particularly being a fan of Pink Floyd and, and some of the bands that he's played with, wow, this guy is amazing, and yet talking to him, he's just, he wants to be considered a regular guy. That's how he views himself, and I really appreciate that. And speaking of appreciation... I really wanna take just a few seconds to have a, a major shout out for the gentleman who made this interview possible, and that's our good friend, Charles Kitch. Now, Charles was the founder of Sound Production, and so his whole life was very similar to this as far as being around uh, live productions, touring, providing the gear, starting with Elvis, uh, and working with some of the major groups over the years. Um, Charles is also a very genuine friend and I'm very glad to say that very proud to say that as um, as a reflection from the the NAM oral history program he has been dedicated to growing this collection in particular the area that Mike was talking about you know pro audio live sound this is sort of new to us uh, officially you know the last I think 10 years or so, we've really been focusing on this much more, and so having Charles and people like him saying, hey, you ought to interview this guy, hey, don't forget about him, and then giving us the introduction, the background, and then uh, the contact has been really a blessing, and so Charles, thank you very, very much for this one and so many others that you have helped us with, uh, greatly appreciate
1: And so in case you weren't uh, already amazed by his uh, career and all of the bands he worked with, uh, sit back and relax while he he talks about being on a tour with Pink Floyd for two years. (laughs) He thought it was going to be a few months and it ended up being two years. (laughs) uh and he has some amazing stories about working with them uh specifically with david gilmore and uh and then just his transition after that whirlwind of a pink floyd tour into other artists um and uh and just kind of starts to reflect a little bit on his career so uh here we go back into uh the Buford jones podcast
3: one night I get a call, and uh, it's from, uh, 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 it was the production manager, Pink Floyd at the time. And he said, it's Buford Jones. I said, yes, it is. And he said, uh, well, Pink Floyd's going to be going out two months from now. Would you be interested in mixing the tour? And I said, no, I don't know. I, you have to let me think about that. No, <laughs> that wasn't much of a decision on that. You know, I said, of course I'll do that. So we had negotiations Days. Flew me to uh, Beverly Hills, which David Gilmore was finishing up the the record there in L.A. and and uh, and I got to spend a few hours with him. I flew from Dallas to L.A., uh, got off the plane, car there. He met me. We talked for an hour. Got back on the plane. Went back to Dallas. And uh, they called me the next morning and said you got it. And uh, so wow, that was a thrill. I uh, you know just meeting him. I I think again we there was a magnetism there. And uh, it's funny that we were talking about Macintosh computers more than we were talking about live sound. <laughs> and he was he was telling me some of the techniques they had used in making the album, uh, the, the Momentary Lapse of Reason, which was just the tour that was about to go out. So uh, there it was. I found myself out with Pink Floyd. Which is, they had said at that time it was going to be approximately 40 dates, 42 dates, 45 dates, something like that which would have been a couple of months, you know, and I okay. And it turned out to be two years, so 200 plus shows. It was so successful and going so well that just legs kept adding on. And there's no disappointment to any of us, even though at that point where I said I wanted to be home, no, Pink Floyd, I'm out doing this, it's okay. And, um, you know, we toured for two years, and the... A lot of people ask me, of all the groups that you've worked with, which are the ones that you enjoy the most? And uh, it's really a difficult question to answer. I mean, James Taylor in Central Park with an endless amount of people to see. Uh, other concerts, uh, yes. I mean, David Bowie concerts, uh, ZZ Top concerts, Leonard Skinner's concerts, thrills beyond description. But Pink Floyd was a new challenge. It was in surround sound. It was just the sheer size of it was so monumental. And I think uh, that it was a time period for Pink Floyd that the timing was perfect. They hadn't been out in 10 years uh, since the wall. Uh, It seems like there was a very, very eager community that wanted to see a new album and a tour from them. So that's why I kept getting added on and added on and added on. And uh, the freedom uh, to do that. I thought at first when I got it, and I said, well, I know that sound is a priority in this band. And I thought, I just hope that I could do this job. And when I went out, I, I uh, the second day, I, I'll, I'll never forget this part of it where I still had this, somewhat nervous. This Now, to me, it was another day at the office as far as my routine and my work. This is what I do, and it's what I've always done, so for that time period, 17 years. And uh, so David came up, and I was timing the intervals of an echo for the song Us and Them, and I was doing it from the record. I'd put it on the CD and, or the, and, and time these intervals so I could put it in the delay line, so I'd be copying the similar time to the live show and David uh, walked up and uh before sound check he was just walked around saying hello to people and he came up and said uh, how's it going Buford I said good and he said what you doing I said I'm trying to get this this echo just like the record and he said Buford and I do always remember this word for it he says be an artist and paint this picture however you want you don't have to do it like the record and I just felt this load just drift away. I knew what he meant and he wasn't saying you know well play around out here see what you get you know and you know no it would stay within the Pink Floyd signature but hey we hired you for your ability and we want that so put it in and and I went wow you know us working together this is what I've always wanted. John Karen, who is the keyboard player in addition to rick wright who was the original keyboard player john karen and i i'd say 70 percent of that tour listened to show tapes every night and john would point out to me every point he had an amazing awareness of every where every album was recorded what every song meant what <laughs> you know the meaning behind it he knew but all the parts and layering I was amazed at John's knowledge, not only his musicianship, John Carrion was a show himself. Sometimes he'd come down to do the sound check before the rest of the band got up on stage. He had many keyboards around him, and I, he himself, by himself, was mesmerizing. So the sounds that come down the wire to me were pristine. It was just a, it was a pleasure. And after David said that to me, uh, like I said, it, it gave me uh, just that. Let's find out what's going on here first the music. We had six weeks of rehearsals. That's almost unheard of in, in the business. And and I didn't, you know, I, this group is so organized. I'm used to us kind of, sometimes when you start rehearsals, you just kind of, you know, keeping calm, keeping smooth, trying to keep track of what's happening and play your part. Don't be too assertive. And um, so in reality, they had already had several weeks I don't know at least four weeks I think in rehearsals for the band for the material now here they entered production rehearsals at a canon air canada hangar at toronto international airport the entire setup in one of the biggest rooms i'd ever been in six stories high that 747 could park in and two 727s at that time it was a monstrous place to work in, but uh, at any rate, once we uh, started getting it up and, 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 and doing this, that uh, I was able to analyze what's going on. And at the end of that six weeks, I'm still hearing sounds, so I didn't know where they came from. We had 136 inputs, three and a half consoles, I'd say it's three and a half is three 40 input consoles and one had a 16 input expander. So there, therefore, the 136 inputs, and I divided it up. They were kind enough to let me hire two people to work for me directly that would do uh, two different jobs for me. One would assemble the drum mix, send it over to my console. The other would assemble reverb effects, send that over to me, and then I would blend all of these together for the final output. So that six weeks was 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 amazing, and, and even when we hit the first and second show, I'm kind of every once in a while hearing a sound. I go. What was that? What was that? Who, who, did anybody know where that came from? <laughs> you know? but, but it embedded me in a way in, that even today, uh, how many years has it been? 30 years. I feel if we sat down and did a show on that same equipment for sure, I could still mix it tonight. I really believe that. It is just firmly embedded in my heart among anything and uh so when we uh that 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 tour and those show times were just unbelievable uh, the excitement and, and just just seeing when the house lights go out I, I i've seen that with with led zeppelin and i've seen it with so many other groups uh, when the house lights go out it's just energy that is bubbling into the air you can't describe it unless you you be there and you witness it every night you say this is incredible energy mm-hmm. so nonetheless I uh, the, the Pink Floyd experience and throughout uh, this will last a lifetime and the intensity will last a lifetime it will not dissolve and I still wanted more and you know to, to work with the more we um, on uh, listening to show tapes, as I talked about earlier, I think a remarkable story there that um, I might be wrong, but I assumed it. But throughout the time period, listening with John Kerry and every night to the shows, uh, David would seldom ever join us, And David Gilmore. And I, and, and I figured it was either that he had a bad experience. I think he knew we were listening to show tapes. I certainly gained the permission to be able to do that. Sometimes I would video record so I could see it and also understand my mix as I'm seeing it when I watch it back in the hotel room. It's extremely beneficial to me. Uh, but anyway, David was seldom there. Well, I don't know. It was almost a year into the tour, and John and I were listening on a bus ride, uh, leaving the gig back to the hotel, and David hadn't come strolling down the the uh the the out of the bus and um john and our backer were kind of trading off these headsets He says what are y'all listening to and he said we're listening to tonight's nice show tape and i said david said well i'd like to hear a little bit of it so i said okay Got so a dat player and a portable dat player and gave him the dat and the phones he went down and sat down and started listening and i'm oh am i going to have a job tomorrow <laughs> i don't know here i'm i've handed it to the boss i i hope i got a job tomorrow So anyway, he um, come back the next morning very complimentary, very complimentary. And that gave me again more confidence and uh, that I'm doing things the way they want it done. Mama bakes the cake and I serve it. And uh, so, I don't know, a month or so went by. He came up to me one night and said, well, we really played well tonight. I'd, I'd really like to hear tonight's show tape. I gave him another one. So he listened to it and once again was very complimentary. And um, so I don't know the time period exactly, but I know a few more weeks went by. And I'll never forget this morning in Berlin, Germany, when we were having breakfast and I had gone down into the breakfast room and David was sitting at the table by himself and I sat down with him. And uh, we were having breakfast and he said, Buford, we're gonna make a live record out of this tour. We're gonna record five nights at Nassau County Coliseum next month and you're going to mix it. You're going to mix it. (laughs) It wasn't like, oh, well, okay. (laughs) Can I think about it or whatever? No, you're going to mix it. And I know it was from him listening to those recordings. I know it was other reports that he would get of people that's hearing the concert in the self. Felt that the mix was there. Uh, Felt that the elements were there. A studio engineer typically, probably more cases than not, mixes live albums, which makes no sense to me. I mean, again, the person that's been out there mixed it every night to an audience, he has it down, or he should. And uh, But nonetheless, here I am granted the right to go into Abbey Road, where the Beatles did all their stuff right across the hall from where the Beatles did theirs, and mix uh, the uh, Delicate Sound of Thunder album, live album spent there six weeks mixing that actually there are eight weeks uh, the six weeks was fulfilling the album contents and the last two weeks was some songs actually could not make it on the record and uh, because the restrictions of vinyl there wasn't enough time so but we wanted to archive those mixes so in the last two weeks that's what I was doing was uh, the mixes on the songs that didn't make it on the record hmm. and uh, there it was. And you know, that, that, that's an opportunity of a lifetime. It was just uh, such a thrill and such an honor to represent them. And once again, David gave me total freedom. Now, I don't know that I really wanted that total freedom. <laughs> I think he was uh, trusted in me. He was busy at the time. I know he had several things going on that he needed to take care of. And, and I honored the fact that he trusted me to take these mixes on single-handedly. But I had assistants working with me. But, you know, at the same time, I wanted, I wanted him sitting right here. I wanted to learn from his brain. You know, and it's, it's not just like uh, he, he taught me a lot of things. But when I look back and what I said, what our fathers could have taught us as kids, what I look back and say what David Gilmore could have taught me, <laughs> it might be one regret. That I, I, and I think David, David always seemed to be ready for audio discussion. Whenever you want to talk about it, he's ready to talk about it and tell you some fine stories. He told me one night on a bus ride back, I'd, I'd eaten a chicken salad sandwich with a bunch of butter on it and hotel and what else. And he come back and sat down beside me and started telling me a lot of the things they did on Dark Side of the Moon. And I was just in awe. I was just like, I can't believe it, what I'm hearing. And then suddenly, you know, <laughs> suddenly he just, I started getting sick, very, very sick. That sandwich did not settle well with me. And and I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm getting real sick. And David's just talking to me, telling me all this incredible stuff. And I'm wanting so bad to hear it. And I get so sick, I'm spinning. And uh, he said, Buford, you okay? Finally, after a while, and I said, no, David, I'm very sick. I remember him pouring some water on my legs. I had some shorts on, poured a little water on my head. And then he just got up and left and we got to the hotel, I think almost 40 minutes after that. And I just, I, I sat still in my seat because I didn't know what was going to happen to me. Then anyway. <laughs> get back to the hotel, then I can get off the bus. It still, it still took me a bit. And I went inside and David was there talking among some people and I went up to him and I said, David, I'm so sorry. That happened to me, of all times in the world. And he hugged me and said, Buford, I've been there many times myself. So I went, okay. I don't feel so bad about it. But, yeah, to have learned from him and all the experiences uh, was most valuable. And uh, that that whole time period was just uh, a great time period. The Pink Floyd, uh, that was called the Momentary Lapse of Reason Tour, has to be one of the most, just, sizable events and and, and most memorable, but no, at the same time I've had so many more memorable moments with wonderful artists. Uh, After that comes so many years with David Bowie and and, uh, through uh, most of his career, and uh, I joined him back in 1990, but also uh, working with George Harrison. I mixed George Harrison's last tour, uh, then with Eric Clapton for a while as uh, Robert Collins was off of Dire Straits, and I filled in for him there and had a wonderful time with that, Uh, on and on. the, the, the artist, I'm, I'm, I'm just drawing blanks at times, but uh, I got to do several genres. I worked with Al Jarreau for a while, so I learned a lot about jazz through that, uh, which is very helpful. As I said, Iggy Pop, a little bit with Blondie, and uh, you know those I learned about the, um, the, that style of, of music. And then I learned uh, it's, uh, so many other things from traveling with the artist. It was a benefit to me. So after, uh, as the years were going by, I think I was almost at 47 years on the road. And I think most engineers that have done this have found an outlet somewhere <laughs> along the line. I had searched for it. I actually came to Nashville and uh, when we moved here in 1991, and that was still in my touring uh, uh, part of my career. And I applied at studios in town, and they would hardly talk to me. Uh, and I made a mistake of carrying a two or three page resume. They looked at their resume and they wouldn't even want to talk to me. They'd say, well, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't understand your question. I want to work here. I want to be at home. And then I went to TNN, which was MTV Networks Now or whatever it is now, it's changed again, I don't know. But they too said, most people, you got an incredible resume, but these people that do this, they come in here to television, You know, one night they're mixing a band on TV, and the next night they're mixing a talk show, and you got two mics. I said, it's fine. It's fine. I'd love it. I'd love it. I I, I get to go home without a GPS, uh, and then I'd be able to remember the names of my kids. I'll do it. I'll do it. Give me a chance. And, uh, no, that didn't work out. So then the phone call would come, here's another tour be Jackson Brown, I, I did many of Jackson's tours all through the 80s and uh, another just enormously pleasurable experience. Jackson Brown, a real honest person and uh, such a thoughtful and caring individual in his music. I mean, uh, all these artists, I, I, I put out my list of 30 artists I think that it's on my resume that I toured with. I don't even list the artists that I did a single show with, or one event with, or award shows and this and that. But 30 artists that I've done at least one tour, in some many cases three, four, five, six tours with, Mm -hmm. and um, all of them, all of them have been a wonderful experience. I look back, I can't believe it, Uh, and I, I think once that. The area, that genre of music that I sort of started with, it was able to stay with me. And then, you know, the nights that I would sit there and be able to listen to some of the most incredible music in the world, in my opinion, and new, you know, it's not only they're playing their classics, but they're playing a new release. And just to look around you and see an audience and and, and and they're absorbing this too, and you have your part in all of this. It's it's just monumental. It's it's just uh, it's priceless. I can't say enough about it.
2: Okay, you guys, uh, as we continue with this amazing interview with Buford Jones, um, I was reminded, of course, of some of the amazing folks that he's worked with. Um, the the story about Jackson Brown. Um, brought to light the fact that he didn't really talk too much in this interview. Maybe we need to do another interview with Buford, because uh, as we mentioned earlier, most of his live sound work led to great relationships with these artists that then requested him to come into the studio and help them with some of their albums so for example jackson brown you know he was uh, the production guy on i'm the cat one of my favorite albums and hold out another great album by jackson brown um he was on the unplugged album with uh uh Eric Clapton, of course, a very famous album that really kind of brought that whole unplugged movement to MTV and all of that. Just amazing opportunities that he had that he, you know, shyly didn't really talk too much about. But I think an important element of his career and extremely compelling. So um, it's just fantastic. I'm sitting here with a smile on my face listening to this guy because it's just so incredible. What What a great guy to share all this with us.
1: Yeah, and you can definitely, uh, you can you know that there's a lot more stories that you could get out of him, I'm sure. <laughs> Spend a couple days, a long weekend, something like that. Um, so as we've been listening to, you know, his amazing career and him kind of walking us through all of that, uh, in this next segment, he's going to be a little bit more reflective um, and kind of talk about some of the stuff that he worked on uh, towards the end of his big career, main career. Uh, and just, you know, how he wanted to make sure he gave back to uh, people that were coming up in the industry and uh, providing that education and guidance. Uh, and uh, just how you could tell he's very excited about about being able to provide that to the next generation. Uh, and then he gets into some fun uh, uh, technical stuff about different tours and uh, the volume and sound of it. Uh, so... I hope you guys enjoy, and here we go, uh, listening again to
3: Buford Jones. I wouldn't have changed anything if I look back at my career. Uh, I think uh, the only thing I would have changed is maybe see some financial opportunities when I didn't see them at that time. I took it all for granted. As I said, I took it all for another day at the office. I I, I go out, that's what I do, and I I work with some wonderful music, and I mix it, and I get paid for it, and it's wonderful, and we go home. But uh, I've had several opportunities. I think all young people that are getting started need to understand that uh, a good understanding of of music law, uh, business law, and, uh, you know, would be well worth the time. You never know when an opportunity suddenly is addressed to you. And in my case, I must admit, ignorance overwhelmed. I did not know what to say. I did not have a manager. I did not have an attorney. I didn't know what to say. And, uh, you know, something that should have and could have provided a very, very handsome uh, financial lifestyle for me. I, um, I didn't know. I didn't know to ask. So I just asked, you know, pay me my, another, my same salary another week or something. <laughs> but that's okay. You know, the, the, the experiences, when I look back on it, I had such wonderful opportunities. But I can't say enough to young people, especially when I talk to them. Understand the industry and understand the law behind it because it will, an opportunity will surface for you and, and it's not going to come back. You know, a lot of these are projects that are scheduled and needs to be done. You need to have your ducks in a row if you're going to get involved and then, uh, then proceed accordingly. But um yeah, it's 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 just been a wonderful career. I'm saddened in a way, I think uh when it ended there. I had joined Meyer Sound uh in nineteen ninety and I uh spent uh, fifteen years with them and it's like what we did is um uh, they they uh I um, found, uh, I think, an interest in me to use me as a touring liaison where I could, the artists that I had met over the years, I could uh, uh, help uh, show them about Meyer Sound Equipment and, and direct them to that. So I was a liaison. I would direct them to whoever, a salesperson or whatever that had interest in that. But then I started an education program, which they already had. The program I didn't start is my portion of it called the Mixed Workshop. And uh, Helen and John Meyer were very supportive, not only of me, but entirely for the, the department itself. And I think that's great. They realize that young people need to understand how to operate this equipment to get the most out of it, because some of it can be—it's—it's um, um, it's something you need education on, and you can't get it in 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 uh, a lot of places as well as direct from the manufacturer. That can give you a lot of. Uh, Input to help you get the best out of your equipment. So I was a part of that So some of their instructors would teach you how to set up the PA and the line and all that And then I'd come in and say okay, it's my turn and we're going to talk about now You've got the sound system up in tune. Now we're going to mix it. So what are we going to talk about? That's always been my expertise is mixing and like I said, I point to these faders over here, but uh, you or your mixing sound uh, that's 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 your main concentration, and you're playing the instrument, as I've uh, noted before. So, that's that's what I was doing. Mm, that's
2: incredible. So you were there for 15 years
3: at Meyer Sound for 15 years. Yeah. Wow. So uh, Helen was letting me do both, and and I thought that was smart. Uh, that uh, you know I was uh, I, I was still touring with Clint Black and with Counting Crows uh, when I started at Meyer Sound. But uh, after a couple of years of that, I just found I couldn't set the cell phone down, you know, it was glued to my ear and uh, it was like, it's good that I'm still active in the industry and representing Meyer Sound, which a company I have so much tremendous respect for in their products and what they make and do. And, uh, I wanted that point to get across to them, to the, to the people that I spoke with, but at the same time, I, it was just non, non-ending, and I'd, I'd get off the bus with Clint Black and I'd have to look around and try to figure out where am I, for one, what's the sound company today? I don't even know, and I'm carrying on another conversation. I, I think there's times before I've asked the guitar player, do you know what sound is out there today? Well, that's not fair, it's not my approach, you know, I was just doing too much too much. I wanted, I wanted to do all of this and I, I couldn't do it. So I told Helen I would like to give her 100% of my time. And if she was okay with that, she said absolutely we're okay with that. So I just had to draw a close to the touring of at that time 47 years. And uh, it was with the County Crows and I remember the last night we were in Santa Cruz, uh, California, the Pacific Center or whatever it was. and. Um, I I got pretty teary-eyed during that performance and uh, because I knew this was capping, this was possibly the last show in a 47-year career and I uh, yeah, I got pretty emotional and I went back to say goodbye to them and uh, I don't think they knew that at all, I didn't even tell them that this was it and uh, I was just Thanking them all for trusting in me and giving me a little piece of their career, and I, I, I yeah I just almost had a nervous breakdown in there, and they couldn't figure out why. What, what you, you seem real emotional here at Buford? Nothing. Eh, right, that cool. Mm-hmm. But I realized that was the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it started in 1971, now it ended, and uh, I, I've been blessed thoroughly all that time period. It just seemed like I've had my stuff, had things handed me on a silver platter. <clears throat> Actually, since childhood, and I'm finding that I'm still searching for what the good Lord has in mind and giving me this. And it's now I know, and it's giving back to young people, especially in the Christian community. But I, you know, I'm I'm uh, now uh, working at Belmont. I've been at Belmont University here in Nashville. I have, uh, in fact, we just did a show this weekend and other the, their uh, showcases. I've done three with them now, and then I'll start teaching there in January uh, 13th uh, for a live sound mixing class. Mm -hmm. I am so, so pleased with this uh, for a Christian college and then at the same time for me to Christian University and and, uh, uh, to be able to give back to the young people and the events that I've already done there, I've been overwhelmed at how many come up and to show their true passion. To learn this, and they're so, uh, I think, excited in a way to where I almost have to calm them down a little bit, you know, because you, you get so much adrenaline flowing in a live show. You know, again, you can't stop this. You can't. You can't say, eh, "All the elements aren't good. Let's just let's just call it off and do it tomorrow night." No, it's going to happen tonight. And there's a lot of anxiety. So, uh, as you you've got to control that again. The trait of a really good engineer and Uh, I think out on the road, it's it's just that, being able to, and there are certainly times when there has been what you would call absolute catastrophes happening in the middle of the show. And I've seen it happen both ways. You know, the guys that can keep their cool, or ladies, and they're calm, even though you are on a crisis here, and you've got to make a decision, you know, and, uh, you, you want to make that the wisest decision you possibly can and get this problem fixed and get the show going. Uh, you, um, so there's, there's quite a few challenges and I think the guys who can oversee that and keep that calm. I've seen a lot of studio engineers that in time have come out on the road to uh, mix live on the road. And once again, they have that studio environment, and then it, it's hard for them to adapt now to a, a dynamic environment that changes every day, and then, uh, then also the the not being able to stop the show. And they have a concentration to focus in on one area a little too much because they wanted to get it the way that it was in the studio, maybe a guitar sound, for instance, where You need a broad perspective, and in live sound I say you must constantly scan the mix. You can't spend any given time trying to do this microscopic research on it. I like to scan the console, make some changes. If I overdid one of the changes, fine. I can go back to it and, you know, find something in the middle. But I'm constantly scanning. And then that way I think it keeps the overall mix going. One of the things I try to encourage young mixers is that You've got to look up. In today's technology, we have so many computer screens around a mixing console. And me, I'm surrounded by them. I love them too. I, I do. But don't find yourself mixing with your eyes instead of your ears. And those are helpful tools, really, before the show, sound check, and can be during the show. But when you bury yourself into that, you're taking your ears and your concentration off the mix. And to me, the worst thing in a concert that I would go to and watch somebody else mix, and I get few chances to do that, is to see an instrument being played and not hear it whatsoever, and hear somebody go to a vocal mic and not hear it whatsoever. Uh, I think to the young engineer that wants to secure his job and his career, he'd be much better off to make sure that everything is seen is heard. And that's just pushing faders. Forget the rest of the console for a minute. Just push the faders until I hear what I see. That will satisfy an audience more so than you getting the greatest kick drum sound in the world or the greatest vocal sound in the world or whatever. Uh, you know, you, it's uh, many, many people that come to see a concert, they are aware of the musicians in that band. They want to hear the musicians in that band, too. What are those musicians there for to enhance the lead artist? We can't leave them out. I find that a lot, too, in, in backing vocals with country music. Sometimes I just don't hear them. To me, from a musical standpoint, backing vocals make the lead vocals sound better because of harmony. You see what I mean? If that lead vocal is out here by itself, the, the, the harmonies and background vocals are buried, which many, many do, you bring that up and now you've got this beautiful harmony, but the, the lead vocal is just on top of that. So it's, um, it's, it's uh, it, 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 the approach is that the concentration must be intense and I think it's, you need that visualization, visualization, I can't say it, of the stage. And what's going on up there, and you'll be a lot, lot better off than doing the perfect mix. We want the perfect mix, but as uh, I really admire George Massenburg tremendously in so many ways, but I love his saying, and I think he's mainly recording the studio. But a mix is never finished. He says it's just abandoned. <laughs> and I understand that. To that at a point. You know, you go like, Man, I've done all I can do, and, and, and it's like you got to move on, and, because we'll tend to always want to do more. Well, that's great in live sound, but you're still, you're going to reach an end by the clock, so you got to leave it. But yes, I, found, I find that the downbeat is just as important as the last beat. So you don't stop you're moving faders the entire time it, it takes you constant movement I remember Don Henley's building the perfect beast tour it's probably sonically one of the best tours I've done I think but it was like it was so complex in a number of inputs and and uh, but I I put a glass of water there on the on the, on the floor and and in the mixing was so involved that I wanted to drink of water, and I couldn't get it. And even between now the song is in, the next song is going to start, I still got to do some presets, who oh, I want to drink, and couldn't do it. i eventually get a drink of water, but that's my approach to mixing. It's not sitting back. It's not talking to anybody. You you, you don't. Getting up and walking around, I hear this a lot of engineers, and in some cases, in smaller, I can certainly understand. But getting up and walking around and listening over here and listening over here and come back and make adjustments, I don't feel you can do that. I trust that to the assistants that work with me. You go have a listen. But I must mix. I've got to mix. I will not stop mixing to get up and walk around. And 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 I'll I'll take your input, and I'll try to assess it very quickly, and then I'll apply it or I may not apply it. But I do want input. I think that the audience should be, their opinions should be heard. And oddly enough, to me, I don't almost ever see that. I think for the uh, ticket prices that cost so much money now, by the time you take a a Date with you, and you've had dinner, and maybe you bought a t shirt or two, you got a pretty expensive night, and you should be entertained. To me, entertainment started, uh, I, I, joking, but back in the caveman. You know, I firmly believe that there was a guy beating on a rock with some sticks, doing a circle around it, doing a jig, that some people walked up and saw him and said, Wow, check that out and then they probably came back the next night and said where's the dude that's was beating on the rock last night we want to watch him again well that is entertainment and it's never going to go away but our audiences as this business escalates how fast can we make it escalate have more work for more people have more touring is to give them shows that they're fully satisfied with when they leave if they don't they're not coming back countless people when i was in my 50s and 60s that i would talk to that i'd hear them say you know they're kind of out of the that young age bracket where they go to every concert they possibly can but now they'll go to the reunion concert or they'll go to a big event and they say man i've never heard something sound so terrible it was distorted it was so loud Uh, i'm not saying this happens all the time but it happens more often than it should and they say, I'm not gonna do that again. I'm not gonna pay that kind of money and and listen to something like that. And and I'd rather stay at home and watch it on YouTube or Netflix and hear it surround and hey, you know. Uh, so we don't want that to happen to the industry. We we need people coming back. We need, and who polls the audience? Nobody does. I, I did a thing a few years there, i wanted I, I was always asking people afterwards i loved input and uh, some of it i could work with some of it i couldn't and uh as an example i tried to some jackson brown tour where after sound checks and before our dinner uh we would and and after dinner we'd have a little bit of time before the show starts so i would go out in the audience i look for couples carried a little spiral notebook and i said would you write down five songs that you hope Jackson Brown is gonna to sing tonight. I was just curious. This had no reason, no purpose. And I said, just write down five songs that you hope Jackson's gonna to play tonight. Because I know Jackson always loved to play what the audience wanted to hear. So um, I, I always sit down with a couple. So now I hand him this book and I tell them, yeah, I work for Jackson and this is non-official, but just write down five songs you're hoping he's gonna play, you haven't even heard the show yet. So they write down five. And I find another couple, they write down five. I find another, couple. that was always, excited to do it. Well, after, uh, you know, I did two or three a night and after I did this for three or four weeks, you know, I built up several pages. So I would go and look at this myself, finally. I, I wouldn't look at it till the end and I'd start flipping pages. Of course, Dr. My Eyes was always on there. Running On Empty was always on there. But here was several songs that were being noted that he wasn't in his set. And, uh, Oh yeah, pretty interesting. Well, I'll show it to Jackson for the fun of it, you know. So I took it back. I showed it to Russ Conkles, was the drummer, and first, and uh, in the dressing room, and Russ looked at it and he said, "This is amazing. This is this is what the audience really wants to hear. That they're well involved." And he said, Have "You show Jackson." I said, it's "Not yet." And he says, "Go show that to Jackson." And I said, "Okay." So. I went over to Jackson and I don't know, maybe it was <laughs> a poor choice of timing, maybe that he was busy and whatever, because Jackson usually, I think, would have. Uh, he looked at it, he looked at it and he kind of thumbed through it, found it interesting, and just handed it back to me. And I thought, well, okay, you know, but he, I, th- I think he took heart to it. Uh, I think what the whole really reason behind it was asking the people who come here. Not only what you want, but more importantly, how did you enjoy the experience that you were here? I've always said I was going to do a website. I just never could get around to it. And uh, I wanted a website where people, you could go to any concert you wanted. You could go to this website, you say, we stole such such an artist, such such a place. Just make it easy. Not, not no long survey, but, you know, it was the sound, da 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 was the lights, da 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 da, da da da, your money uh, to the performance ratio, was you pleased with what you got, and this and that. And uh, I would think managers and record labels would. Eat that up! I mean, it's truly saying what the people uh, that we want more of them coming back. Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen it been done. Maybe it is, but I like I said, I love to hear input, and I think that's what we need to base our future on. I think we think, and so many times, and especially I've heard from management, they they just want to chest pounding, depending on the genre of the music, but it's chest pounding levels of music when you walk around and ask anybody and they're not saying they want that. I'll also give you another example uh, with Prince. I was on the Purple Rain for a while and uh, consulting there and, uh, and anyway one night uh, and it was very powerful but it was, I wouldn't say uh, it, wasn't over, it, it, it wasn't painful by no means, uh, but it was very powerful. And I remember a, a few young girls that he came up to the console and was asking some questions with a couple of other guys in the crew. And I, I heard them talking, and I, I walked over. And these girls were saying, teenage girls, and they were saying something to the effect, all Queens likes coming to town, and we're going to see Metallica too, and we're really looking forward to uh, whatever, uh, another heavy metal band. And uh, I thought, wow, this might be a good opportunity. So I I just kind of interjected myself, and I said, I'm curious, you like heavy metal? And they said, oh yeah, we love it. And I said, great. And I says, tell me, was this Prince show tonight for you? too loud, not loud enough, just right, or what was it? And they said, oh, it was so loud we couldn't stand it. <laughs> and I go, wait a minute. <laughs> You're in heavy metal and you thought Prince was too loud. Well, that says something. You know, um, another example with Linda Ronstadt on the levels, uh, I can say so many things about Linda Ronstadt. I admire her so much and learn so much from her that carried me through my entire career. But we played, we, we did things at a good, powerful level and there it is when she did a lot of rock. And then we we're doing a theater in Las Vegas where uh, the, they come up and told me, Peter did it. I only did it if Peter Asher, the manager, told me because he paid me and I do what he tells me. But he said, you got to turn it way down here tonight. you got to turn it way down. And I was so disappointed with that, but I did. And uh, the level he gave me, or that they gave me, was ridiculous. I really wonder if they even knew what they are talking about. They said something like 88 dB, and I don't know that I, I can get over the band. The band's going to put out that much level with no PA on. I might as well go back to the hotel and watch TV or something while the show's going on. <laughs> so uh, I did, but I did it. And, uh, and I had to work with a band, a very professional band. They would do anything to make sure that the show was good for the people. So they all turned down. I said, you guys got to turn down and now that I'll have control of what's being delivered. If you don't turn down, you'll be mixing the sound. You see what I mean? It's going to come out however it is. You turn down, I got control, we got to balance. They knew exactly what we were talking about and they did just that. First couple of songs of the set, I was oh, no. I don't know if I can handle this, (laughs) it's just rough. And uh, so about the third song, I, I said, you know, you know what? I hear every instrument up there. I hear every note up there. I didn't want to admit that to myself. I said, I've never heard it this clear. Well it was the funny part about it all is as the audience was leaving at the end of the night. And we're sitting in the middle in the back, and the people were coming by, and just almost every one of them saying, great show. You know, it wasn't loud. We, could, we, we didn't have to yell. We could hear so well. It was just a wonderful show. And well, thank, you, thank you very much. Glad you enjoyed it. That's what I want. And then another one say the same thing. It's similar similar. This just kept going on. I'm, wow. really funny that when I got on the bus, uh, the LD, the lighting director, uh, he's was going, <laughs> He said, yeah, people just kept coming by me I, after the show telling me how great it sounded. <laughs> he, he's the lighting director. <laughs> they wouldn't know the difference between the two consoles. So, you know, that light bulb lit up with all of that. Now, I wasn't going to mix my shows at 88 dB from then after, no way. And uh, nor did I really lower the level for that tour. I started thinking about the situation more, looking at my audience. What kind of age group do I have here? What will they tolerate? And then at the same time, I want to give them something that uh, uh, is is what they want to hear and what's something that they can enjoy. Mm -hmm. So I learned to control the sound a lot better with the SPL involved. And I think for many years, sound systems were coming out and uh, they're just trying to get more and more powerful than each other. More and more power and clean power but, and then just bombarded. The engineers just seemingly want the pedal to the metal. And, and no, I, a lot of venues, I think when I would go into, uh, I learned a routine that worked out very well for me. I think it was on a Pat Benatar tour that I, I, I uh, would shut the PA off as the band would start playing for me. Uh, you know, after they have done their stage check and monitor check. And then they'd play for me and I'd turn the PA, well I'd actually mute the fader, just bring the fader down. And I start bringing the fader up and get it up. I'm listening to the sound of the stage, okay. Now, to, I've got just a little bit over that. In other words, I've got control. I'm hearing some of their bleed, but now I've got control. And just leave it there, no matter what it says. No matter if it says that I'm 10 dB down or 16 dB down or whatever. And that worked tremendously well. I also did that on Al Jarreau's jazz tour. Mm -hmm. And I found that the jazz, and doing shows in Europe, especially that he had booked uh, almost all symphony halls that were never intended for live or uh, loudspeakers to be brought in there. Uh, So I, I learned there quickly and used that same and similar approach to where I just had the PA off, listen to them play on their own naturally and it sounded pretty good, but of course I can't hear his voice and and uh, certain instruments that uh, had to use a microphone. So you start blending in the sound system to now you just got a little control here and then ride his vocal until I hear his vocal. Now those show recordings or tape recordings that I mentioned earlier that wouldn't apply to this case. But that approach to the audience worked out extremely well. The first three shows in incredible symphony halls were just, that was like, just no way. I, this is, isn't working. It was kind of a combination of acoustic instruments and combination of electric instruments. So I probably filled up your time and more so do you have a final uh, final question and all. This
2: is great. You covered what I was hoping to cover. Thank you so much. Okay. I really appreciate it. Anything from no, I'm good. Okay. Thank you, Buford. Really great stuff. You're very I appreciate welcome. Appreciate hanging out Thank with you. With you. Thank you very much. I think yeah. we could be here all afternoon.
0: <laughs> I think if there's one point that this interview really hit home for me, it's that the mixing console is an instrument. It's as very much of an instrument as being on stage and the live sound mixing aspect of a concert is so important. I mean, the concert wouldn't happen without that, and I feel like the people involved in mixing do so much more for tours and concerts and even recordings. Um, It's just crazy. Um, What an amazing interview. If you're interested in seeing the video that accompanies this, we actually have the full interview posted on our website, so you could head over to nam.org slash library, search for Buford Jones, and it should pop up for you.
2: Thank you, guys. I really enjoy doing this podcast and all of these podcasts with you, too. I really do appreciate you and the team that we have together in sharing these great stories. Uh, A special thanks to Buford for allowing us to come and uh, capture this interview with you. Uh, Greatly appreciate it. It's quite an honor for us. And as for the rest of you cats, we will be uh, providing another podcast in two weeks, so you'll be hearing from us then. Meanwhile. Take care, stay safe. Bye-bye.
1: Bye bye.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino,
1: and Ashley Allison.
0: If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at